everybody. This is Eugenio Duarte in Miami, and I'm your host for New Books in Psychology. Today, I'm very excited to welcome onto the show Joel Weinberger and Valentina Stoicheva, authors of the book, The Unconscious Theory, Research, and Clinical Implications, published in 2020 by Guilford Press. Joel Weinberger is professor in the Derner School of Psychology at Adelphi University. He is fellow of the Association for Psychological Science and of the American Psychological Association. His research on unconscious processes has been recognized with the Ulf Krag Award from the University of Lund, Sweden. Author or co-author of approximately 100 publications, Dr. Weinberger is a founder of Implicit Strategies, which consults for political campaigns, nonprofits, and businesses. His political and business commentaries have appeared in the national media. He is also a practicing clinical psychologist. Valentina Stoicheva is a staff psychologist at Northwell Health in Bayshore, New York, where she works with military service members, veterans, and their families. She is also a co-founder and director of Stress and Trauma Evaluation and Psychological Services, also known as STEPS, a group practice that focuses on the integrative treatment of trauma. Dr. Stoicheva has taught undergraduate and graduate level courses and has contributed to over a dozen publications and presentations in the fields of trauma, family dynamics, and the psychotherapy process. In 2018, she was named one of Adelphi University's 10 under 10 outstanding young alumni. Welcome to the show, Joel and Valentina. Thank you, Eugenio. Great to be here. Thank you very much for having us. So I actually want to start with a a confession and an acknowledgement. Um, The confession is that I really love reading the acknowledgements sections of books. Um, It wasn't always the case, but a few years ago, I I started finding that they're very compelling parts of the book. And I got to say that your acknowledgements section, I found it really moving. Uh, it, It sounded like this was a really huge personal endeavor for each of you that required a lot of support, a lot of love from your family and your friends. Can you tell tell us a little bit, starting with you, Valentina, can you tell us a little bit about what this project meant to you personally? Oh, this was a project that took a, a very long time, um, both because it we, we really strove to include a lot of information. And as you can see from the book, we have an integrated um, research and theory and history um, and um, empirical studies kept um, popping up. So we would we would write for a long time. Um, and then by the time we were done with certain sections, there was new research that needed to be integrated. So um, we really, it took us a, a, a long time. It was a really long, um, as you said, labor of love. Um, it meant a lot of dedication and sacrifices time that we didn't probably get to spend with family and friends. But um, for myself, I was really lucky to have very supportive people who would um, just cheer me up when I said, listen, I I can't make it out this weekend again. I can't see you again. Um, And of course, for myself, I have family overseas. So that was, uh, it was very, um, it was very nice, the support and the encouragement that I felt from them as well. What about for you, Joel? You know, I, I, I make a half kind of a joke. Someone says, how long did it take you to write the book? And I say, well, uh, 
in one sense, it took me three years, and in another sense, it took me 25 years. Uh, I tried doing something like this a long time ago, and I just couldn't handle the uh, the diversity of, of, of all of the areas, <clears throat> and I gave up on it. And then I picked it up again. I have to thank my therapist, actually. I was talking about it, and he said, you need to do this. Usually, I mean, I was in psychoanalytic psychotherapy. They don't usually say, you need to do this. They usually, how does it feel? What are the issues? He just said that, and I was so stunned. And I also want to say I couldn't have done it without Valentina. Uh, we met weekly. She kept me on track. And um, the reason that I thought this was important is because uh, there are all these separate areas that study the unconscious, and they don't talk to each other. So I'm psychodynamic, but I also do research that already makes me strange in the field. And uh, I wanted them to be able to, to talk to one another and to know what the other one has to say. And that was, to me, the biggest challenge. And as Valentina said, we'd finish a section and then new research would come out. But that, in a way, was fun for me. So um, what I hope came out of the book is if you're psychoanalytic, you can read it and learn about what other people have to say, maybe a little review of what your, your own field. If you're a researcher, you can read it. And I got into the, uh, we got into the philosophy and, and the history because I also wondered why doesn't why don't people believe in this? It's obvious there's an unconscious, and yet uh, people have resisted it. So all of that went into it. Then I had the support of, of my family, particularly my wife, who had to listen to me recite sections, and it was a labor of love. You picked that up correctly, Elena. Uh, it, it was very consuming in a in a good way. And and to follow up with you about that, Joel. It, you make the point very clear as almost one of the premises of this project that all these different lines of research on the unconscious, they exist, but they don't really talk with one another. With one another. Why do you think that is? I think that uh, psychoanalysis uh, isolated itself early on because it was rejected by academia because of uh, anti-Semitism towards Freud, but then it took on a life of its own. So psychoanalysis lives in institutes rather than the academy. The academy, for whatever reason, decided that psychoanalysis is not uh, scientific and therefore not worth looking at. And people doing research on what now is called implicit processes. If you don't mind, I'll tell a short story just to show you what I mean. Way back in 1989, I was doing a postdoc uh, with a guy named David McClellan out at Harvard. And we handed in a paper. Uh, to a very prestigious journal. And we said, we entitled it, uh, and we had the words unconscious and conscious in it. The paper was rejected in, in no uncertain terms. Essentially, we were told that uh, we didn't deserve to live and ought to change our careers. So I was devastated. And I showed the review to David, David McClellan. He looked at it. He went, uh-huh, uh-huh. All right, change unconscious to implicit and change conscious to self-attributed. This is before the word implicit was, was in psychology. I said, why? He said, it's not my first rodeo. Just just do what I say. So we did that. We sent in essentially the exact same paper. The review came back, tour de force, brilliant paper. And now it's considered a classic in psychology. That was what the field was like and to some degree still is. So people who do research don't talk to, um, to people who actually practice and deal with the unconscious on a day-to-day -day basis. And people who deal with that don't look at the research, and it makes me nuts. And uh, that was one of the major motivating forces. So that makes me want to ask you something else, and, and I'll direct myself to you, Valentina. You know, in the psychotherapy world, uh, 
I've always thought of the concept of the unconscious as most commonly belonging to the realm of psychoanalysis. Is that a misconception? Do other therapeutic approaches also incorporate ideas about unconscious processes? I mean, I think that the unconscious, it's, it's really everywhere. Most of our functioning is probably unconscious. Um, even right now, as we're talking, as uh, you kind of directed us earlier not to fidget too much because the microphone will pick it up. And um, a lot of uh, the stimuli in our environment, we filter. A lot of them we're not consciously aware of or are under that threshold of awareness. Uh, but you're asking about the different types of um, schools, maybe in psychotherapy. And I think the unconscious features in all of them, one way or another, maybe it's called something different. Uh, maybe it's uh, maybe it's being left out from the explicit, um, here's that word comes in again, explicit uh, framework or theoretical propositions of different schools. But I think it is noticeable um, everywhere whether we call it unconscious, whether we call it implicit, whether we call that black box between stimulus and response that we shall not name and we shall not discuss, um, it is there. Um, as to your question about whether or not it's all a dynamic unconscious, um, as the book argues, we have a lot of unconscious processes that are going on at all times um, in our minds that are not necessarily the psychoanalytic dynamic unconscious. They are what we call normative unconscious processes. We all have them um, and they do in, in impact our functioning both outside and inside of the, of the psychotherapy office. Uh, what would you like to add to that, Joel? I, I would say that other forms of psychotherapy do have the unconscious in it. They just give it different names. So if you look at CBT, they talk about automatic thoughts. That's just simply another way of saying what's going on inside your head that you're not aware of. What psychoanalysis did, and where you, you have a very valid point, Ohanio, is when the field denied unconscious processes, which it did for decades, the only discipline that not only didn't deny it but made it central was psychoanalysis. They kept the concept alive. And then what Valentina said is, is, is also important, uh, which is that everything to some degree is unconscious. There's no this is conscious, this is unconscious. And I think what psychoanalysis in its focus on therapy may have done is only focus on the pathologizing aspects of the unconscious. Whereas when academia finally got into it, they focused on the adaptive side of the unconscious and that led to more misunderstandings between the two. But every therapy has unconscious in it. It's just that psychoanalysis puts it front and center. So to, to you, Joel, I, I, I'm thinking, do you think that so, so I guess the term, the unconscious, uh, as a term, maybe belongs more to psychoanalysis or at least originated in psychoanalysis, whereas other fields address unconscious processes, but they call them something else, as, as Valentina pointed out. Do you think that there's a difference or it's even worth distinguishing between the unconscious versus unconscious processes or non-conscious processes, or are they essentially the same thing? That's a really good question. Um, I think the problem is that unconsciously, if I could uh, coin a way of looking at it, the, the, uh, the terms have associations connected to them. So, for example, when our paper got rejected, it's because we used the word unconscious, 
the uh, editor and the reviewers saw the word uh, associated to Freud. They don't like Freud, therefore we were morons. Um, when you use the word implicit, I think psychoanalysts go, I don't know what the hell that means. Uh, why don't you just say unconscious? They're not wrong. So uh, there's actually a very good paper by Ron Hassan, uh, who, who's an Israeli psychologist. He was in Columbia at the time, I believe, where he says, hey, let's just call it the unconscious because that's what it is. But it's now taken on political connotations, all kinds of associations. I think what psychoanalysis more focuses on is how the unconscious can mess you up. What um, academia focuses on is how it's normative, as Valentina said. And the truth is it's both, that the normative can go wrong like anything else, and that they're, they're, they're both correct. I, I would wish that they would use the word unconscious because it's descriptively correct, not conscious, un, as in not. That, that would be my preferred term. And Valentina, what do you say? And uh, I, if I could just add one more thing, I think from my perspective, the way that I think about it and the way that we have uh, proposed this unifying theoretical framework in our book um, about the unconscious, I think one of the issues about calling it the unconscious is that it's, it proposes or it states somehow that the unconscious is this entity in our brain that functions um, independently of, of our conscious mind. And um, that is a bit of a misconception, I believe, because um, as we argue and based on the research that we review, most of our mental processes have both unconscious aspects and maybe some conscious aspects to them. But the unconscious is not its own you know, bottom of the iceberg that does not at all communicate with the conscious parts of our minds. That's that's where I think it might be a bit of a misconception of calling it its own entity versus a quality of process of the processes. Now, I as well come from the world of psychoanalysis. I, I was trained as a psychoanalyst in New York City at, at Willie Mallinson White Institute, which is an interpersonal relational institute. And as far as I'm aware, I think psychoanalysis is moving in the direction, is moving away from thinking, as you mentioned, Valentina, the unconscious as a thing that exists somewhere that that has a form and, and has boundaries, and, and more as, like you're saying, processes. Um, is this, are these developments recognized outside of psychoanalysis by academia? Um, do you think that they're informed by academia? Uh, I'll start with you, Valentina. Um, I think that's a very good question. I think that's uh, that's partially what we're trying to accomplish with with our book, to in helping the different areas in psychology and neuroscience to talk to each other. I think um, more I, in terms of I've read certain psychoanalytic or psychodynamic writings um, and papers. Joel mentioned um, Hassan, and he's certainly uh, there are others too, but. Um, I believe more in um, terms of empirical research and studies. I have seen uh, the field take that direction. I think in the larger public or audience, it's. Uh, I think people still think of it as they, they call it subconscious, unconscious. They, they still think about it in the terms that it was more defined by Freud and psychodynamic therapy. I would like to hope... Um, and to think that 
our field is in general moving more towards recognition of the, the process or the unconscious characteristics of mental processes. But I do think also that there are many psychologists that uh, do still consider them pretty irrelevant. And um, the sad part is a lot of the sort of empirically based therapies, um, sort of the gold standards that receive a lot of the funding for um, particular disorders, whether it's anxiety disorders, or I work very heavily in the field of PTSD and trauma, um, they do kind of leave it out. They, they take a very programmatic, manualized approach to treatment, which can work. Uh, and I'm not, not saying that it doesn't, but it does leave a lot of the um, unconscious nature of certain processes out. Shaw, what would you say? I'm going to answer your question, Ahanio, with one word. Uh, do the fields outside of psychoanalysis recognize that psychoanalysis has moved from the unconscious to unconscious processes? No. Uh, the, the, the world outside thinks that psychoanalysis ended in 1939 when Freud died. So what you see are, are critiques of Freud and the, the Oedipus complex and infantile sexuality. I just had a conversation with a very prominent psychologist at Yale who was basically saying those kinds of things. He was open to hearing what I had to say, but they know nothing of object relations theory. They know nothing of interpersonal uh, psychoanalysis. They know nothing of relational uh, or self. They don't know anything other than what Freud said, and they don't even know that accurately. So what you have is this kind of uh, cartoon straw man image of psychoanalysis. And uh, unfortunately, and I think it's partly the fault of psychoanalysts for not talking to the outside world as much as they should, they don't know that psychoanalysis has changed since Freud died and, and has a different point of view than, than what Freud had in 1939 or earlier. Uh, and what they've done a lot of is reinvent the wheel. They've discovered that people actually do things without uh, knowing that they've done them, with, uh, they have motivations that are unconscious. And, and some of the work is very good, but none of it references psychoanalytic work. And, and I agree with you, by the way, and I'm, I'm, I think I'm allowed to say this as an insider in the psychoanalytic world, that sometimes we, it's, it's a fair critique that we're, we're not out there enough sharing our findings and contributing to the broader literature on, on psychotherapy so that people can know how, what developments we've, we've come up with ever since Freud died. Um, I, you know, the bulk of your book really is an introduction to several other lines of work besides psychoanalysis that deal with unconscious processes. And I, I want to name some of them. Uh, they include heuristics, implicit memory, implicit learning, automaticity, and so forth. And, you know, reading this list in your book, reading it alone I think makes an important point, or it did to me, which is that unconscious processes are not the sole purview of psychoanalysis. But to illustrate this point, can we start with, say, heuristics? And can you tell us what that area of study has to say, what it is, and what it has to say about unconscious processes? Why don't we start with you, Joel? Okay, so heuristics, uh, the most famous people uh, who, who uh, studied heuristics were Kahneman and Tversky for which Kahneman won uh, the Nobel Prize in economics. Tversky, unfortunately, passed away and couldn't. And what they are are, are cognitive shortcuts. They're, they're a way that we think that is irrational and we come to conclusions. And there are all kinds of examples. I, I don't know if you want me to 
to go through them. But basically, we don't think rationally and logically. We, we think in a, in a shortcut kind of a way in terms of how frequently something has happened to us. I'll give a quick example. What's more dangerous, an airplane or a car? And uh, most people are more afraid of airplanes than cars. But if you look at it, cars are actually more dangerous. More people die. There are more accidents. Why do they think airplanes are more dangerous? Because when there's a crash of an airplane, it's front page news and it goes on for weeks. And when there's a crash of a car, you hear it on the traffic report that you should avoid this highway. So there's all kinds of examples of that sort. Um, and there are several heuristics. I won't get into what they are, but they're all shortcuts like that that worked when we lived on the African savanna for the most part. Uh, it's built into us. Their point of view is that it's biological and built into us. Uh, Valentina and I believe that it's all based on uh, associations and associative networks, but that doesn't really matter who's right. What matters is that we think that way. So that, that's kind of a shortcut for, for thinking so we don't have to uh, analyze everything. We don't take into account odds. We just take into account what we like and so on and so forth. I, I hope I've been clear about them without getting into the weeds. I, I think so. Um, and Valentina, to you, one of the things that comes to mind and a point you make explicitly in the book is that the example Joel just offered illustrates how some of these unconscious processes, they're not necessarily motivated by any kind of dynamic factors, by conflict or repressed wishes. They're just kind of how the mind works, right? And and I think that leads to a term that you introduced earlier, but I, I would love for you to explain to us, which is the normative unconscious. What What is the normative unconscious? Our um, motivation to term it this way, and Joel, I'm not sure if this is your term that you came up with even prior us starting to talk about it or if it was um, something that you knew beforehand, but was to put this in contrast to the, as we said, the, the pathologizing aspect of the dynamic unconscious um, and to normalize it. What it means is that we all have those processes. That's how our brains are calibrated, so to speak. Um, and it's normative. It's, it's, it's normal. It's uh, non-pathological. Um, it's amotivated. And it's not rational or irrational. It's just, it just is. Um, so for example, Joel's, Joel's example was, um, we're, we're calibrated to fear certain, um, objects were calibrated to uh, one of the, the processes that we speak of is um, effective salience, which is that idea that we might be, um, we might process um, emotional information much faster in our brain than cognitive information. Because if all of a sudden I find myself in the forest and I see a bear I'm probably going to start running before my brain starts going, huh, that's a, that's a brown big object that's walking towards me. I should probably run, right? So we react to certain things. Um, we have those shortcuts like heuristics. We are calibrated to implicitly pick up um, relationships in our environment, for example, where we're big pattern uh, discerning machines. Um, and that's both adaptive in certain situations, and that's why our brains do that. And then in certain other situations, it can create problems. And then that's why we go to therapy. Um, for example, 
you mentioned implicit learning and implicit memory. So one of the um, examples that we give in the book that we talk about is in is attachment styles and um, how we pick up relationships between uh, circumstances or people. And let's just say if I am a kid who grew up in a in a violent environment and I learned that when a door is slammed, that means something bad happening. As an adult, I might not even be able to articulate, um, but will have a, a physiological reaction to that. And if my partner, for example, um, is angry and I pick up an angry face, I might have a really hard time. Um, navigating my way out of a possibly innocuous conflict because of some of these reactions that we have, but um, they served a purpose earlier, maybe for keeping us alive. So um, we all have those processes. I think that's the takeaway, that there is nothing pathological or wrong about them. Um, They worked and they still work in certain aspects and um, acknowledging, recognizing when they're happening, learning more about them learning when they serve us and then how to harness them versus when they don't serve us and what we can do about that is, is crucial. Joel. Yeah. So I, what I want to do, Eugenio, is, is do big picture and then narrow it down. I think Valentina did a great job of giving examples. The big picture is this. We evolved to live in an environment in which we no longer live. We evolved to live on the African savannah. And our mind works as though we're there. A very simple example is we like sweets. And, uh, you know, that was good there because there were fruits are good for you. And now we've created fruits on steroids, which we call candy and sugar. So our mind works similarly to that. So that's one area where something that was adaptive may no longer be adaptive, but for the most part still is adaptive. Then we are a product of our experiences. We learn in a certain way. So implicit learning says, Whatever two events come together, you associate them so that the first one seems to you to be a precursor of the second one and therefore cause the second one. Well, that tends to be true, but it also cannot be true. So in, in therapy, the way I think of it, rather than a dynamic unconscious, is I'll say to my patients, well, you came up with a coping mechanism when you were eight years old because these were the resources you had, and that was the best you could come up with, and they worked as, as well as it could work for an eight-year-old. But now you're 38 and you have more resources and better coping mechanisms. Perhaps you want to think about a better way to deal with this issue. The same thing happens in terms of our heads. We are built to deal with things a certain way. Uh, we're built to understand things a certain way. And uh, for the most part, it works. When it doesn't work, we have pathology. So the normative unconscious, and, and I, I, I don't know if I came, came up with it first. I came up with it maybe someone else used the term before, is we didn't evolve to be screwed up and to be neurotic. We evolved to function well. We got screwed up and neurotic when it doesn't work. And um, that's sometimes what happens, and that's why I can see patients, and you can see patients, and Valentina can see patients. But for the most part, this stuff works well. So speaking of patients, let's talk about what this what this says about or, or what application this has to psychotherapy. On the basis of all the work that you review in your book, you do ultimately offer your own model of psychotherapy, which you term normative implicit psychotherapy. It, it, tell us about this. Why don't we start with you, Valentina? Um, so thank you. Uh, well, I mean, I think we're, we're offering some suggestions. I, I would like to 
to think of it as a, a model of psychotherapy, but the reality of it is that it's not a finished model of psychotherapy. However, we offer suggestions based on uh, the qualities of the unconscious that we discuss. We do have in each one of these processes that you named, Eugenio, um, we offer clinical implications part of those chapters um, in which we discuss more clinical examples and how we believe they um, how we believe clinicians can benefit from from knowing some of um, some of the information that we've provided. Um, and I think that the model that we offer provides an understanding of unconscious processes, of unconscious processes in the therapy office, and offers some practical suggestions such as um, having more um, psychoeducation, for example. I think it really helps for our clients and patients to know why their minds are doing what they're doing and um, normalizes and contextualizes that. We also talk about the importance of longer-term therapy or potentially having booster sessions because one of the qualities of our minds that we discuss is that new knowledge does not replace older knowledge. Um, as Joel mentioned earlier, our learning is um, it's associative, but it also has its neurological underpinnings that we talk about. And so our new knowledge, our new coping skills are not going to exterminate the old ones. It takes a long time to learn them, to practice them. Um, and we, we kind of crack ourselves up, but we came up with this, with this thought or phrase that it's not only to make the unconscious conscious, we have to then make the conscious unconscious. And that takes time. Um, and we somewhat argue, um, and the evidence argues against shorter term psychotherapies, um, and in favor of longer-term psychotherapies. And Joel, what would you add? All right. So, so uh, I'll, I'll give a practical example, and if I have, we have time, I'll tell a story. And that is, so, so I'm going to treat a patient now, and I let's say I believe my book. I hope I do, since we wrote it. Um, I you got to be the way you are, and and what works and what doesn't work because of all of these implicit unconscious processes. You learn a certain way to behave. You have certain memories. You're not aware of a lot of it because it happened over time and it happened when you were younger, but this is now the way you are. So you need to understand how you got to be how you are. So that, that would be making the unconscious conscious, to, to put it in psychoanalytic terms. But now that we know you're not cured and it's not, you're not going to get better, uh, you need now to practice a new coping mechanism. Psychoanalysis would call that working through. And that's going to take time. And in other, other uh, types of therapy, you actually physically practice it. I don't see them as mutually exclusive. And now you have to make the conscious unconscious. You've gotten your insight. You know how you, what happened. Now you have to practice a new way of behaving till that becomes unconscious. That's called automaticity. The more you practice being a certain way, so let's say you've been a certain way since you're 10 years old, 8 years old, 5 years old, and you practice being that way, it's not automatic for you. It's just how you are because you practiced it so much. Now you need to practice the new way. Uh, and in terms of what Valentina said about it taking a long time, the analogy I use is, do you think that you can uh, cure prejudice in a half a year or six weeks or six days? Of course you can't because we've been practicing being biased and prejudiced, whether it's being racially prejudiced or, or sexually prejudiced or whatever it happens to be. And it's not going to go away after you gain some insight into it. You're going to have to work on it. It's going to take a long time. So why do you think that if you behaved a certain way 
for most of your life, you think that I can get rid of it in half a year. That's ridiculous to me. And yet some therapies make that claim. And the story I want to tell, if we have time, is I was on an airplane coming back from California to New York. And uh, it's actually funny. So they asked, is there a doctor on the airplane? So I thought someone's having a heart attack, uh, which I'm not a physician. Then they asked if there was a nurse. I thought, okay, still a heart attack or a stroke. Then they asked if there was a dentist. And I thought, what, someone has a toothache? And my wife, who's smarter than me, called the flight attendant over and said, is someone having an anxiety attack? And the flight attendant said, yes. So she pointed to me and said, he, he specializes in anxiety. So I went over to the person. And what I did based on, on the book was, after I introduced myself and established a kind of a contact, which any therapist would know to do, I don't want to take special credit for this. I think any decent therapist would have been able to do this. I asked her what was going on. You know, we now knew who one another were. And I said, here's how anxiety works and here's why you're freaking out. When you are anxious, your impulse is to leave the area. That's what you do when you're anxious. You run away. This is what Valentina was saying about psychoeducation. And you can't do that now. You cannot leave the airplane. If you were in an area that made you frightened, you go to a new area. That's how you're built. You can't do it. That's why you're freaking out now. And you want the plane to land so you can leave. The plane is not going to land. And this is why you're the way you are right now. It's perfectly normal. It's perfectly fine. And she calmed down. I had to intervene once again about an hour later uh, with a similar kind of an explanation. I'm making it simpler and shorter than it was. But that would be the psychoeducation. Anxiety exists for a reason. Freud knew anxiety exists for a reason. Therapists know anxiety exists for a reason. But when it's out of control, it harms us. When it's not out of control, it motivates us and gets us to do things that are good for us. So that's the kind of thing that normative, implicit psychotherapy would do and, and change, I would hope. And put inside the therapist's head that you're not crazy. One more thing, if I have a minute, is attribution theory. Um, the therapist will hear the patient say something and attribute it to the patient's personality. The patient will then tell you, it's not my personality, it's the situation. Uh, anyone would have behaved this way. The therapist now says it's resistance. The, uh, the uh, patient now says the therapist is lacking empathy for me. What's really going on or what might be going on is attribution theory tells us that when we see a behavior, when we hear something about somebody, if it's the other person, we attributed it to their personality. That's a bias built into us. And if we're doing it, we attribute it to the environment. That's a bias built into us. So if I know that and the patient knows that, we're in a better position to explore whether it is the personality or it is the situation. I would be more sensitive as the therapist, and hopefully the patient would be more sensitive as the patient, knowing that it could be one or the other. And I hope I wasn't too long-winded about that. Not at all. Valentina? Uh, yes. And if we just have another second, I would like to um, just add one more thing that in, in the process of then making the conscious unconscious, um, some of the challenges are not only from the fact that this is not yet habitual behavior, for example, and that it takes time to practice it just like any new behavior, um, but also it is uncomfortable. It put it puts us in a in a, a a mindset of more distress because we are now going against what feels like our very well rehearsed ways of doing things. Um, and even even if those rehearsed ways of doing things are anxiety provoking and distressing, there is still distress in changing them because for what the, for whatever reason they're there, 
they have served us in certain situations. So what Joel was talking about in terms of the woman having or a, or a man having a panic attack in, in an airplane, um, part of that anxiety is because that person was forced to do something differently from the way that they would have done it before, for example, running away or, or leaving the situation. So when we do try to develop new coping skills and new ways of, of um, facing challenges and new ways of relating to people, um, it is difficult not only because it's a new behavior, but because we do experience a certain amount of discomfort and distress. And that is also normal. And then our role becomes um, partially, at least, guiding uh, our patients and normalizing that distress and guiding them through the fact that even though you feel distress and you're reading the situation as dangerous because of your distress, doing it in this new way is not necessarily dangerous and you kind of have to get through the distress in order to get to a better place. I, I want to make a subtle but important point or, or you make a subtle but important point that I want to highlight uh, from, I think, the, the latter part of your book. You say that unconscious processes are not irrational, they are irrational. And I think this is important because so many of our patients I'm sure happens with you. Love to throw word around the word irrational. Why am I being so irrational? What do you mean by calling them irrational instead of irrational? Maybe we'll start with you, Valentina. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, when we call something irrational, the 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 context or the subtext is that it exists for for no reason, or a, the reason is that it, it goes against rational thought. And our unconscious is not irrational in the sense that it doesn't make sense. It actually is associative. Um, our mind works associatively, and it makes sense in the context in which it occurred. So whether we're talking about the neurological underpinnings and what Joel were, was talking about in terms of um, when our minds evolved um, the way that they did, or we're talking about certain um, behaviors, implicit learning that is within our lifespan. It exists there for a reason. As I said, we pick up patterns in our environment and then we react to those patterns, um, especially implicit learning at younger age. That's why it is so difficult to extinguish things like biases and stereotypes. Um, they're not irrational if they exist or they, they were... Um, picked up or they became more automatic in the context that they did. Uh, when they stop serving us and when they uh, create more pathological behaviors or we uh, hopefully have enough self-awareness to recognize that we have certain um, unhealthy behaviors or attitudes or, or prejudices as, as we all do, um, and then start thinking about where they came from and what we can do to counteract them. Um, that's that's when our um, ability to to take more charge and to make certain new learning um, more prominent comes in. But it's not irrational in the sense that it just sprung out of nowhere and it makes no sense. It makes sense, but in a in a particular context that may have changed since. So we're almost out of time. This has been a really illuminating discussion, and the book covers so much more that we didn't get to speak of in, in this discussion. I'd like to know before we sign off what each of you is working on now or what you have coming up next. Why don't we start with you, Joel? 
Okay, thank thank you, Eugenio. Um, well, first of all, I'm stuck in my house, as uh, most people are in New York right now, with my two teenage boys, my Great Dane, my wife, and my 94 year old mother. So I'm 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 learning about all of my implicit uh, biases and and uh, automatic thoughts and unconscious. So uh, that that's one thing. Um, I'm also wanting to communicate what the book has to say to uh, different audiences. So I, I'm, I'm working with uh, some of my students on an article that will appear in a non-psychoanalytic clinical journal. Um, and then uh, another uh, article that I hope will, will appear in, a, uh, in a, uh, an academic journal to, because uh, people tend to read journals more than they go to books sometimes, and maybe that will get them to the book. Uh, we're also wanting to do something related to the unconscious in terms of what's going on with healthcare workers. Uh, what, what most of the surveys are doing now with healthcare workers is they're asking them how upset they are, and then they're answering they are, they aren't, they are to a certain degree. But what about if they uh, don't realize how upset they are? So one can measure the level of, of distress that somebody has that they can't report. And then what we'd like to do is... How will that affect them three months, six months down the road? Our prediction is that unconscious distress will be more predictive of health problems and difficulties down the road than will be conscious distress because conscious distress you can talk about and deal with and unconscious distress you don't talk about and deal with. Um, trying to think what else I'm up to. Uh, I'm trying to get used to doing psychotherapy via Zoom. It's uh, hard and tiring for me. and. Uh, keeping my family safe and, and myself safe. I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're keeping yourself safe. Um, and how about you, Valentina? Um, thank you, Eugenia. I mean, I, I've been also transitioning to working via telehealth. Um, I also direct a group practice. So between my regular full-time job at the clinic for military veterans and then my private patients and, and the private practice, it's been pretty busy, um, leaving not as much time for extracurricular activities as I would like it to, but um, we've been trying to popularize the book and what we have to say. I We had a couple of talks lined up that I think are now postponed or um, canceled until next year because certain conferences um, were canceled that were unable to transition to an online platform. Um, certain talks with colleagues and the psychological associations about the book uh, coming up in the fall. And um, I think some of the longer term projects for me, um, I am, I, my, my passion is working in, in trauma and also um, using what I know and what we've learned in the process of writing the book um, with my own clients. And I would like to, I would like to think that somewhere in the near or not so near future, there is another book or at least uh, some another labor of love that connects these two fields that I feel very strongly about um, unconscious processes and trauma. And hopefully that will come to fruition at some point as well. And when it does, I hope that you'll be in touch because we would love to have you back on the show to talk about that book. Thank you. Uh, Valentina and Joel, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for expanding our minds and our conceptions of what is the unconscious, 
what it means and, and how it works and how it can be utilized in psychotherapy. Uh, thank you again for coming on the show. The book, again, is called The Unconscious Theory, Research, and Clinical Implications. And my guests today have been Joel Weinberger and Valentina Stoicheva. Thank you so much. Thank you.